Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. continuing in our retold series. Uh, today, our story, we're jumping back into the New Testament. We spent a couple weeks in the old, now we're in the new. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Let me kind of give the, uh, the context of what's going on here. Jesus is on his way um, to Jerusalem, and on his way to Jerusalem, he has to cross through Jericho. So now he has entered Jericho, and what we have to understand is in, in the, this region, Jericho is a very populated city. Um, it has almost half of all of Israel's priests live in Jericho, and many of them were excited and desperate to see Jesus, not always for good reasons. Uh, they may have wanted to trap him for many other things. We read, we know the stories, right? And so Jesus is in Jericho, and there's all of these people who want to see him, but he's trying to press through in order to get to Jerusalem, because the, and, which is about 17 miles away at this point. He's almost to that point in his, in his journey. But the story kind of stops here in Jericho for a minute, right? And what we have to understand in this time, uh, Rome is in power, and Rome has got their political way of doing everything, and they've got different soldiers and, and armies and different things placed in these cities to kind of keep the order and make sure that everything is how it should be. They also have tax collectors. So every city has its own tax collector, and every tax collector collector is absolutely hated by the people. All right, tax collectors were considered uh, sellouts. Now, I'm an elder millennial. I've said this before. So I grew up with the uh, in the era of punk. Pop punk? Anybody with me? Okay, we're talking about Fallout Boy, Panic at the Disco, Green Day. Okay, right. So we got these. And but it, what's interesting is the punk culture is kind of like stick it to the man. You know, we don't care about the system. We're not in it for the money. We want to have this the lyrics that are anti-government, anti-this, and they have this strong anti-the man reasoning and lyrics and passion. And then you have this era where these bands are like, you know what, maybe we won't be so rough around the edges so that we can be more popular and kind of gain some momentum and make some more money. And so they got lumped into this pop 
genre of punk. And all the other punk bands looked at these popular punk bands and said, you know what, you're pop punk, you're a sellout, right? You changed your message, you you maybe rounded off the lyrics a little bit, you even changed your style of music to become a little bit more popular so you can make a little more money, right? And the way that the punk bands viewed the pop punk bands was like these sellouts, right? That's how tax collectors were seen, or like a politician who kind of abandons their core values to gain more votes. They were looked at in this negative light, considered sellouts or even cheaters, right? They were scheming. They, they schemed the system for their own personal gain. They lived well while many of their peers struggled to barely get by. The way they did this was, was one, they got good compensation from Rome, right? They were paid well. But then on top of that, the, as the other Israelite people would come in and they would come in to, to pay their taxes and they would look at, the tax collector would look at their paper and say, oh, you know what? I see that this person owes 10 U.S. dollars in tax. We're making it understandable, okay? 10 U.S. dollars in taxes. <clears throat> they'd look at the person and say, okay, you owe 20 and they'd give Rome 10 and they'd pocket 10, right? And they'd played the system so that they could become rich, Tax collectors were hated. Now, um, we ha- I have a video that I'm going to play here that's from the, the Chosen, and it's when Jesus calls Matthew, who was a tax collector, to come and follow him. And I think this is good because it's going to give us a picture of how tax collectors were thought about and treated in this time. So, Jonathan, go ahead and play that video for us. Matthew. Matthew, son of Alphaeus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. 
shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. Today, we're not talking about Matthew. We're talking about Jericho's tax collector. We're talking about a man who you know because he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he, right? We're talking about Zacchaeus this morning, okay? Zacchaeus, like Matthew in our video, was a tax collector. He was hated, he was despised, and people treated him very similar to, we saw Peter's reaction, right? This is a great image of what happened with Zacchaeus. We know his story, right? Just like in this clip, just like Matthew in this clip, Zacchaeus is rich. He has his security blanket. Money is no object. No doubt he had a nice house. In fact, Jesus invites himself. So we know that this house could accommodate many people, which is not a common thing in this time. So Zacchaeus has got money. He's got a nice house. He's got money is no issue. He has no money problems. Now, if you've ever experienced money problems, you know how nice that sounds. I can remember when Lauren and I first got married, uh, we had no furniture. We had a nightstand with a TV, no cable or internet, so we watched Friends DVDs, okay, that were borrowed, <laughs> and we had a bed, which is all you really need when you're newlyweds anyway, okay, right? But so we had no, fur- no living room furniture, nothing like that. We just had the bedroom furniture, no money. I was working part-time at Starbucks and part-time as a youth pastor. No money, okay? Lauren, without TMI, very regular, And then we got to this season where she was no longer regular. And we were like, oh no, we're pregnant. (laughs) No money, not planned, terrifying moment. And I'll never remember just sitting on that bed like, what are we going to do? Now, turns out we weren't pregnant yet, okay? But that moment, I'll never forget that moment of being just absolutely what are we going to do? If you've ever, I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you make. I know that there have been times, all of us in this room have been worried about finances. Maybe it's after a job loss or in between seasons or fresh out of school or whatever. At some point in our lives, we've been concerned about money. Imagine if you had a way to make it to where you no longer experienced money problems. Would you take that opportunity? I think most of us would say yes. It's easy for us to look at scripture and see these tax collectors and think, man, these people are evil. Why would they be so bad? But listen, Zacchaeus was wealthy. He had no money problems. If something was broke, he didn't have to fix it because he could buy a new one. That's how it worked, okay? He didn't have to worry about the car breaking down or paying the electric bill. He had plenty of money. He had nothing like that to worry about. And we see his story and we think, you know what? He's not living on mommy and daddy's dime. He's a self-made man, right? He has accomplished the American dream, financially secure on his own by working hard and doing what he was supposed to do, except for he might have cut a corner here or there. But you know what? To be able to have that security blanket, it might be worth it. At least that's 
where we can find ourselves. And we look at Zacchaeus and we say, you know what? He had money. And as good as that sounds, we quickly realize that money is actually all that he had. Zac was an outcast. He was a tool by, of oppression by his oppressor. The people he worked for, the Roman government, didn't even consider him to be human. They saw him as a dog. So the people he worked for hated him. Then his, his peers, the, 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 his people that he was supposed to be a part of their community, they hated him. They saw him as one with Rome. He's most likely been disowned by his parents, cast out from his community, which in this day and time was a death sentence. Multiple generations lived in the same houses. People depended on their families as a way of living. When he makes this decision to go out on his own, it is always a death sentence unless you have money. Zacchaeus found a way to make money. But in doing so, he became an outcast. There was no community around him. Everyone in the city knew him, and everyone in the city avoided him. And understandably so, right? He had cheated them. He had done evil things. Zacchaeus was unpopular. He was recognized by everyone, but known by no one. And so we enter our story, Zacchaeus, when we first meet him, He is looking for Jesus. Jesus coming through Jericho as a pass-through moment to make it to Jerusalem. And he hears, just like everybody else, that this man is coming to our city. And Zacchaeus gets excited. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to see if the stories that he has heard are the real deal. See, Zacchaeus, in an attempt to to live his best life, has now alienated himself from everyone. He has made decisions that would make it so that he could be successful, but in the process, he has destroyed his life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there making decisions you thought would make you happy, but in the end, it leaves you at rock bottom? That's where Zacchaeus is. He's lonely and neglected and an outcast. And he hears, he hears that this Jesus guy, this street preacher, as we saw in the clip, is actually a guy that, that becomes friends with people like Zacchaeus. He, he becomes friends with people who everyone else rejects, who everybody excludes as a sinner. We have a man that's coming through town who looks over burnt bridges, a man that crosses cultural barriers, a man that will build a relationship even with difficult people. And Zacchaeus is like, man, I am lonely. I wish I had someone who would call me friend. I wish I had someone that I could be in an intimate relationship with. But nobody will be my friend. I've burned too many bridges. I've hurt too many people. And now here's this man. There's this opportunity. I wonder if he would call me friend. But there's a problem. Zacchaeus is not the only one seeking Jesus. A crowd has formed, and it's only growing more and more dense as time progresses. People have lined the street. People have crowded in the middle of the street. Jesus can't even walk through without bumping into people. What's Zacchaeus going to do? He's too short. (laughs) He's too short to see over the crowd, and he's too rejected to be invited to the front of the crowd. He's too proud to ask to get into the crowd. But he's cunning. 
He has already figured out a way to make a living and provide for himself. He knows how to solve problems, so he begins looking around. How can I see Jesus? How can I see Jesus in a way where I won't get hurt? How can I see Jesus in a way where people won't judge me and glare at me, and in case the things I've heard about Jesus aren't true, I can still be somewhat hidden? How can I make this happen? He begins looking around, and he sees the sycamore tree, known for its sturdy branches that are low to the ground. And you know what? If you go and you look at what these sycamore trees look like, you get actually the higher up and you get in them, the foliage gets thicker and thicker. So, so Zacchaeus has this opportunity to climb this tree, be high enough to look in and see Jesus, but be hidden enough where others won't see him. He has this opportunity to see Jesus, but remain hidden so he doesn't get hurt by the crowd or maybe this Jesus guy because he doesn't know much about him. He climbs up in this tree. His plan to stay hidden doesn't work. As Zach is hiding in the tree, trying to see Jesus, trying to get a glimpse of this friend of sinners, someone sees him in the tree. Luke 19, 5 and 6, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So quickly he came down and welcomed him joyfully. This is why this story is told over and over again in Sunday school. This is why this story echoes at every VBS experience you've ever been at or sent your kids to. Because this is the gospel in action right before our eyes. This is the point of this story, not just that Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus, but the point of this story is that Jesus is looking for Zacchaeus. See, he's up in this tree where he should remain hidden. The only reason that Jesus would have looked up and recognized him is if Jesus was looking for him. Look at how he calls him down. Jesus looks up. Zacchaeus was known for his labels. Jesus could have called him any of the labels that all of the people around him had called him. Do you know what he's done? We saw Peter say about Matthew in the video. He was labeled as a tax collector, as a traitor, as a screw-up, as a terrible son, as a thief, as a loser. All of these things were labels that people spoke over Zacchaeus over and over again. And no doubt he probably spoke over himself. Jesus didn't look up and say, hey, you cheater, tax collector, come down. He looked up and he called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus. He knew who he was. He was, Jesus was looking for him. Jesus calls him. Jesus notices him and calls him by name. Let the reader understand. Jesus notices you. He calls you by name. You are known and you are loved. There's a movie that's popular. You may have seen it called Goodwill Hunting, right? It's got Matt Damon and uh, Robin Williams. Famous scene in it. You may have seen it. You may have not. But there's a point in it. It's the, the not your fault scene, right? Will, who is played by Matt Damon, and Sean, who is played by Robin Williams. Will is kind of this wayward genius, right? He can solve any problem but his own. And he's spent many years ruining his own life, sabotaging any relationship he's been in. He's a problem causer. And so he's, in this, he's begun this relationship with Robin, Robin Williams, who's like a counselor to him, trying to help him figure out why his life is, is so fallen apart. And you get to this scene where uh, 
Sean calls Will into his office and Will walks in and he sees his file sitting on the desk. And so they kind of begin to have this conversation about the file and we learn a little bit about Will's history at this point. We know that he's had a terrible childhood. We know that he spent years being abused by his, fo- his foster father. And they have this moment where they kind of bind, bond over the fact that Robin Williams was abused by his father as well. And you get this picture of why Willis kind of destroyed his life. And there's a moment where being the smart aleck that he is, Will looks at Sean and is like, so what is it? Will has attachment disorders. Will has a fear of abandonment. Like I know all these things. I've been told them many times before. And Sean looks at him and doesn't diagnose him, doesn't give him what, tell him what's wrong with him. He looks at him and says, it's not your fault. Will's like, I know. Sean says, it's not your fault. I know, I know, I know. It's not your fault. And there's this powerful moment that as Sean gets closer and closer to Will, Will is beginning to realize more and more that he has blamed himself. And for the first time in his life, he feels seen. For the first time in his life, he feels like there's somebody that knows him. For the first time in his life, he's hearing truth spoken in love to him. There comes a moment when Robin Williams says, it's not your fault. And listen, if you've watched movie scenes, the crying scene almost always makes me laugh because it's such a bad job. But Matt Damon loses it, begins to weep in the arms of Robin Williams, realizing For the first time, he is seen, and it is not his fault. Listen, Jesus sees you. He knows your name. He knows your failures. He knows the things that you've done. He knows that how you have been treated, how you have treated others. He still loves you. He is still looking up in that sycamore tree, calling you by name. You are known, you are seen, and you are loved. Jesus was on a mission, not just trying to move through Jericho, but having the time and the energy and being willing to stop and look up and see that there was a man in need who needed to be healed. And Jesus looks up, calls him by name, and heals him. Andrew Knowles says this, Jesus comes to Zacchaeus like a shepherd to lost sheep. He finds him, accepts him, and helps him to discover new life. And this is how the quote ends, and it's actually my next point. Our point of need is God's point of salvation. Our point of need is God's point of salvation. Zacchaeus was lonely, outcast, and broken. And Jesus meets him by calling him by name, inviting him into relationship, and then inviting himself to Zach's house for dinner. Zacchaeus' greatest need is right where Jesus met him and gave him eternal life. Jesus meets us where we are and he fills our every need. Story after story that I've heard and encountered is when somebody is at that moment of desperation where their life has fallen apart, everything is in chaos, they're flat on their back at rock bottom, and it's in that moment that they see Jesus for who he is, reaching out a help hand to rescue and deliver them. That's where Zacchaeus had found himself, and so often that's where we find ourselves when we first encounter Christ. 
I was at a, a conference this past week, and I met a couple who uh, goes to one of the churches in our district, and the husband was a functioning alcoholic. Uh, when he woke up in the morning, his coffee had alcohol in it. As he got ready to go to bed, his Coke had alcohol in it. it. It was what he needed to even get by. If you've ever known anybody who's been a functioning alcoholic, they actually, they can be well past the uh, breathalyzer test for drunkenness and still functioning just fine because now the alcohol has become a thing that they rely on versus getting drunk on. And that's where this man was. In fact, if you ever get to that stage and, and come off of it, most of the time you need to be hospitalized because the withdrawals alone could be deadly. And every ounce of his energy in his life was around alcohol and it was destroying his family. Kid that he even talked about, even now that he's sober, he uh, is navigating the broken relationships and the things that he did while he was an alcoholic. And he got to this point where his life was falling apart. His wife had given him so many ultimatums. And then this time she decided she was going to stick with the ultimatum. He comes home from work and there's the divorce papers. He's losing his wife. He's losing his kids. His whole life is crumbling. And it was at that point of desperation and brokenness that he decides to go to celebrate recovery at this church in Alabama. And Celebrate Recovery, if you don't know, I think it started with Rick Warren in California, but it's basically an AA meeting that is focused and centered on Christ and focused and centered with the church. <clears throat> it's for both addicts and family members and people who know addicts. And so this church has kind of used this as a discipleship model. <clears throat> and so this man goes to this Celebrate Recovery meeting where he first encounters the love and compassion of Christ. He surrenders his life to Jesus, and through the work, the hard work of going through withdrawals and getting sober, he does get sober. He does find healing. It saves not only his life, but it saves his marriage and his relationships. None of it would have ever happened if his life would not have fallen apart. Listen, I, I've prayed this prayer many times for people who I know who don't follow Jesus. I say, Lord, make them miserable for you. I've prayed it because I've seen that when people get to that broken point where life has hit that wall and they are at rock bottom, the excuses that they have leaned on, the excuses that we have leaned on no longer work. They fall away and there's that, that moment of broken desperation is the moment when they see Christ and are truly transformed. They surrender their life to him and it doesn't come until they hit rock bottom. Your point of need is God's point of salvation. But then what happens with our story? Here's a man, Jesus is healing his soul. And how do the people respond? Verse 7 says, all who saw it began to grumble. Began to grumble. Your versions might say complain, or they might say mutter. They said, how? He's going to stay with a sinful man. Jesus is healing his soul. This is a man that has cheated them. And Jesus is changing his life to the point where he's no longer going to cheat them. Jesus is changing him, and they're mad because of who he is. He's healing a soul, and they're mad because of the soul that he's healing. 
Listen, if you have been a Christian for many years, this is the message for us. Church is messy because people are messy. If we are doing church, if we are doing life right, we will be in relationships with people we don't really like. We will be discipling, hanging out with, fellowshipping with people we don't like because the people we don't like are loved intimately by Jesus. Church can be difficult because it is about being in relationship with people who are different than us. It's when we kind of get ourselves into a little bubble with people that are just like us that we begin to get stagnant. We begin to stop growing and even begin to drift. We can't forget what it was like to live without Jesus. Listen, I thank God every day. I grew up in a family that took me to church. I got saved at like the age of five. I don't remember a time when I didn't follow Jesus. Now, for a lot of my life until college, it was very legalistic, but I still followed Jesus to the best of my understanding. My whole life, I'm so thankful that many of us in this room, many people don't have that story. Maybe there's a point when you got saved. But even me, who as long as I can remember, I followed Jesus, I can look back over my life and see points where I was doing life alone, not leaning in and living with the Holy Spirit. We can't forget what it's like to live without Jesus because that is where so many people in our community are stuck at. I'm thankful for the generational prayer, grandparents and parents who have prayed for and walked with me. But even with that, there have been moments where I look back and I think, man, my life could have been ruined if Jesus would not have delivered me in those seasons. How are the people in our world supposed to know the joy of following Christ if the Christians are always grumbling and muttering and complaining The truth is we are called to reach people that don't look like us. We should be in intimate relationships with people who are on the other side of the political fence, with people who grew up in different cultures than us, people who look different than us. The church should be a mixed bag of people. We can't be like the religious people in the story grumbling because Jesus is hanging out with sinners. I'm so thankful that Jesus decided to hang out with me even though I was a stiff-necked fool. Can we be just as joyful when he begins to call us to hang out with difficult people? The last point is this. When we read the story, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but the story ends here, so I want to end here. Not only is Zacchaeus saved, called by name out of that tree, immediately filled with joy that Jesus wants to be in relationship with him, but he literally changes. The thing that has driven his life, the greed that has caused him to neglect the relationships, the greed that has destroyed his life and the community around him is literally given up. Jesus, he has this encounter with Jesus and it transforms him. Listen, Jesus did not come to save you from hell. He came to defeat sin and death. And that means that when you surrender and follow him, yes, you are saved from hell, but sin has lost its power over you. 
when we are stuck and we give in to sin, it's not because sin has power. It's because we have yielded to it and given it that power. When Zacchaeus sees Jesus and encounters him, he is completely transformed. We know that because of Leviticus 6, 5, that when he goes to return the money, the law requires him to give back 20%. But Zac tops it. He he makes this extravagant pledge to repay everybody four times over. He immediately gives half of his wealth to the poor and promises to repay the money he has stolen. To quote Knowles again, Zacchaeus is as cured of greed as the blind man was from darkness. Luke 19, 9-10 says, Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him. Because he too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus declares that Zacchaeus is saved. The greedy tax collector, so at odds with his neighbor, has come home to the love and forgiveness of God. The same has happened for me, and the same can happen for you. There is healing, there is freedom, there is real change, real hope, real salvation in Jesus. And the text ends here, for the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has come to seek and save the lost. That's the point of this story. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And listen, if you are a believer, it's because Jesus has sought you out. He has drawn you into into himself. And now we hear this story, and I hope you're moved. I hope you can remember the moment when you were saved, that you remember what it's like following Jesus and what it was like before following Jesus. And now as Christians, the call is on us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to go out into our community and find those who are like Zacchaeus, those that have held up idols, idols of self or career or family or whatever it may be to try to find their happiness. They've, they've, they've tried to live their best life. And it caused them to reach that moment of destruction is our calling to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to go to them and call them by name, to let them know that they are loved, that they are seen, that they are known, and they have a place where they can enter into community. The church, the body of believers should welcome them in and walk with them. This is a story, yes, of salvation, but it is also a story of discipleship. Jesus invites him into relationship, and it's in that when he tells him he's coming to his house, that his life begins to change. Listen, we're, we're, we're getting back to our Tuesday night meeting this week, okay? But there's a future with the life groups that I think is going to be really important for us. Now, I need your patience and your grace as I navigate what it's like to start a second group, because there's lots of Um, obstacles and things to avoid and ways to do it right. The good news is there is a church that is not Wesleyan, but Wesleyan adjacent (laughs) that has used this this same model that we are using. Um, They're a church of about 150 and they have 100 people involved in life groups. And that the way they did it was by being life group focused. For us, I don't care if we have 150 or if we have 20 people, but I want us to be involved in this life group because that that is when the life change happens. Salvation and discipleship, this is not my quote. I don't remember who said it, but salvation and discipleship are two sides to the same coin, and that coin is used to purchase kingdom growth. The way we want to do that at Revive is by being involved in discipleship groups. 
that means being out in the community, meeting people, but then bringing them in and inviting them into being relationships. So I encourage you, if you haven't been coming to our Tuesday night groups, to come back to it. If not, if it's too too difficult to make to that, that's fine. We're going to be adding a second group, I think maybe Sunday mornings, where I'm still toying with that, and I'm being coached by this other church and how to do this the best way possible. So give me some patience. That's the future with these groups. That It's going to be a point where we take this story of Zacchaeus. We see salvation and discipleship happening in this story, and we, we practice it as a body of believers as the church. That's the application for me in this message, is let's bring people into community. Let's let others know that they are seen, known, and loved by Christ. Let's pray.